Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. In this episode, you'll hear from investigative journalist Jim Popkin. His new book, Codename Blue Wren, tells the story of Cuba's most successful spy, Anna Montez. For nearly 17 years, Montez worked as a defense intelligence agency analyst with access to some of the government's most secret information, which she regularly passed along to the Cuban government. Arrested shortly after 9-11, Ana Montez served 20 years of hard time in a supermax prison and was just released on January 8, 2023. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. One of the most dangerous spies ever captured is scheduled to leave prison this weekend. Ana Montes is an American citizen, but for 16 years, she was loyal to Fidel Castro, using her position in the Pentagon to spy for Cuba. Prosecutors struck a plea deal with Montes. She has spent the last 22 years in a maximum security prison. I will say I think she's pretty fortunate to be getting out of jail. There's not a lot of spies of this caliber who walk out of prison. And quite frankly, she could have... Had she could have spent the rest of her life in prison. Um, frankly, I would have preferred that. Jim Popkin, your new book, Code Name Blue Wren, tells the story of Ana Montez. You tell readers that she was more dangerous than names that the public knows, like Aldrich Ames, Robert Hansen, and yet nobody really knows her story. Why not? Ana Montez was arrested right after 9-11. So it was a big story, but it was just lost in the headlines. Um, I, had the, I was working at NBC News at the time. We didn't even do a story on it because we were covering uh, 9-11 and the terror attacks. She is a very important spy. I would put her at you know, the, the same caliber as some of the other major spies that you mentioned because of the longevity of her spying career. It was nearly 17 years uh, spying for Cuba. Her discipline, um, she would memorize just reams of classified information and pass it along to Cuba. Um, and Cuba has a track record of sharing that information with Russia and her other adversaries. So there was a kind of multiplier effect there. Two things uh, in reading your story that we learn about Ana Montez that contrasts her with some of these other spies. First of all, she didn't take any money per se. And the second was that she wasn't just passing information. You talk about her working it from both ends. Would you explain? Sure. Well, she was really an ideological spy motivated by her politics and her hatred of the Reagan era, um, what she considered meddling throughout Central America in particular. Um, she, she took barely any money. It was essentially expenses. She took a, probably a couple thousand dollars in this uh, nearly 17-year period uh, for her car, for a computer to pay off some college loans. But she was not motivated by money, unlike, say, Robert Hansen, the FBI agent who was spying for Russia, or Rick Ames, who worked for the CIA and also was secretly spying for Russia. They really enriched themselves. She didn't do any of that. What are some of the known consequences of her spying? 
Well, she um, she basically blew up every program that we had in Cuba at the time. She provided the true identities of Americans working in Havana and elsewhere in Cuba, which is obviously very dangerous, and whatever plans they had were interrupted. In fact, on her computer, when the FBI searched her apartment in, this is May of 2001, they found a document from the Cubans thanking her for providing the true identity of an American working in Cuba and then saying, quote, we were waiting for him here with open arms, which is pretty chilling. Um, so she compromised all of those names. She turned over hundreds of names of Americans working on Cuban matters uh, throughout the intelligence community. And she also revealed the existence and details of a super secret spy satellite went by the name MISTI, which the U.S. had been successfully using in Russia, China, Iran, and other countries, including Cuba. She turned over details of this to the Cubans. They presumably shared or sold that information to the Russians, and that program, that satellite program, never worked as well again. Two other fascinating aspects of her story, and we'll have lots of time to talk about. There's, at first, her family is filled with FBI agents. Yeah. What were uh, their reactions when they found out about their sister's espionage? Anna had four family members who worked for the FBI. They are loyal, patriotic Americans who were horrified to learn 10 days after 9-11 when Anna was arrested that their, that their sister was a spy and, and Castro's uh, top, really top spy in, in history. Um, they were just absolutely stunned. They continue to be upset uh, by this, but as I'm sure we'll, we'll discuss, Anna just got out of prison, and they're now trying to figure out how to kind of reintegrate her into their family. And her sister, Lucy, shares the subtitle, and, and we'll talk about their counterpoint relationships as, as our conversation goes on. Uh, but uh, in the opening clip, we heard that she served her sentence in high security, basically a supermax for women, right. throughout her 20, almost 22 years of imprisonment. Why such high-level security? Yeah, so she was in a prison. It is really a, a supermax for women in the federal system. It's called the admin unit, and it's really not well known. It's a prison within a prison in the Carswell kind of uh, center, federal center, um, in Fort, near Fort Worth, uh, Texas. Um, she was there. She served uh, just a little bit more than 21 years in total, but most, almost all of it was served at the admin unit at Carswell. It's a very restrictive <clears throat> facility, and the reason why is because she has so much classified information. They really wanted to control what she was able to share. Um, I was never able to interview Anna. That was taken off the table during her plea negotiations. No reporter could talk to her. Um, she was very restricted in any access to her. She had a small group of, of friends and family that communicated with her for these nearly 21 years, but outsiders couldn't, couldn't uh, contact her at all. Well, if the rationale is that she had so much classified information, she's out of prison now and she still has that. Yeah. So how did the authorities square that? Well, she's first of all, she's under probation for uh, five years. Uh, she does not want to go back to the admin unit. That was, a, that was hard time. 
uh, say what you will about the length of her sentence. It was hard time, and I can explain some some of her other fellow inmates were. Um, and also, it's been a long time. Her information, she started as a spy in 1985. She's arrested in 2001. A lot of her information is now dated. But she's barred from talking to any foreign agents whatsoever. If she reached out to anyone from the Cuban government, she's going back to prison. So I, I can't imagine she would take that risk. If she hadn't been prevented from talking to you and you had the opportunity to interview, what would you want to ask? I guess I would really try to understand uh, uh, the, you know, her motivation, the why. Um, I'm curious about her relationship with her father, who was in the Army. He was a doctor in the Army. He retired as a colonel. Uh, he was abusive to his children. And I have a, uh, a CIA document that looked at on it was a behavioral study of her after she was arrested. They conclude that one of the reasons that she spied was to act out against her father. She had a very difficult relationship with. So I'd want to ask her about that. I'd also want to ask her about Lucy, her sister who worked for the FBI loyally as a translator in Miami, and why their relationship deteriorated. You could make the argument that Anna actually protected her siblings and family members because she refused to discuss not just anything about her work, but anything about her personal life for a long time. It created a schism between the the relatives. They didn't understand why she was so closed-mouthed and and really pent up in a way. And so I'd I'd want to get into that and try to understand, were you protecting them or were you just under so much stress at that moment? So before we get into details a little bit more about you, how did this story first come to your attention? Um, I've been a journalist for, for ages, and I was a producer at the time at NBC News with uh, Pete Williams, a great correspondent who recently retired. And as, as I mentioned, Pete and I were covering 9-11, and that was our you know, main, main focus for a long time. This story came across uh, the news. I'd read about it. I was really interested. I love spy stories. And Pete and I actually had covered Robert Hansen's arrest and a lot of other spy stories, but we couldn't get to it. About a week later, a friend, a very close friend and college roommate of mine called me and said, did you see this story uh, about this woman, Ana Montes? And I said, yeah. Why do you mention it? He said, she bought my condo. And then I realized, oh my goodness, I have been in her apartment many, many times. Um, Obviously not when she was there, but it just rooted me in the story. I, I'm, you know, I, I know her building, I know the, that unit, and it gave me a connection to the story. And I kind of made a mental note to go back when things calm down a little bit and, and pull on the threads of this story a little bit more. All told, it's been a, about a 15-year labor of love for you. <laughs> yes. uh, why so long? So obsession, maybe. <laughs> um, uh, I'm fascinated with it. it. She's a really interesting person. Um, Someone, you know, as I said, you have the whole family at the, not the whole family, most of the family at the FBI. Her father's in the military, um, proudly serves in the Army, and yet she is so incredibly disloyal. That's interesting. The whole mechanics of how she did it is, is fascinating. But my book is really a study of two sisters, and they're their paths, um, you know, obviously they intersect, but in many ways they, they don't. 
And it was extremely difficult for Lucy to have this relationship with her sister and not understand why things had broken down for so long. Lucy told me an anecdote that uh, was fascinating. She said, <clears throat> at arrest day, she's brought into the FBI. Her supervisors call her, and she assumes she's in Miami. She assumes she's being brought to the boss's office for a new investigation regarding 9-11. So many of the hijackers went through southern Florida, and she was in Miami. And she's brought in, and they sit her down, and uh, one of her supervisors say, we have to tell you that your sister was just arrested in Washington. Your sister is a Cuban spy. I bring that up, Susan, to say her immediate reaction was relief. Uh, there was shock and anger and, and surprise, of course, but she was relieved to have this information because it explained a lot of really odd behavior for many, many years with her sister, her only sister. So that those elements, it's, it's a great spy story, but there's a sister story here that has fascinated me. Mm -hmm. And for me as a reader, there's a third story, which is the intel community and the long time it took for them to ferret her out, which is really uh, an interesting area to explore. So uh, uh, Lucy clearly cooperated and gave you interviews and information about the family. And I was actually surprised at the number of people in the intel community who spoke with you. Was there any... <clears throat> principal character, important character that just said, no, I won't talk to you? There were, there definitely were a few who um, refused to talk that, you know, beca either because it's sensitive, um, some of it involves classified information, so some former officials were, um, were obviously, they were sensitive about that, didn't want to get into it. Um, there was shame from some of them. They, some of them didn't want to talk I, my presumption is because of, of shame um, and, and anger. There are former colleagues um, out there who remain incredibly angry to this day uh, to Ana Montes. One of her colleagues uh, once said, my life went up in flames as a result of this. And what he meant was everything that I'd been working on she had she was privy to she had access to and if you're in the intel world and you're developing sources and information on cuba and you have a spy for fidel castro sitting next to you everything that you're learning and developing is going right to to castro it's going faster probably than if you were publishing something and so uh he just felt that his life's work was was a waste in some ways so those kind of, there are, are folks like that who refuse to talk to me because they're just, they feel burned and it has not gone away. So on to Anna's story. Uh, as you mentioned, um, her father, readers will actually learn a great deal about her father, uh, who was a military psychologist and yet an abusive husband and father. Yeah. How, how, how could he have operated in sort of this dual capacity? His name is um, Dr. Alberto Montes, and he was really a brilliant man. Uh, he grew up in Puerto Rico, very, very poor. Um, I mean, no, no running water when he was when he was young, and um, and and he was and he was so bright. He goes to college in Puerto Rico, and then he goes to medical school in Albany, in, in the states. That was his first flight was going to medical school. Um, he he 
kind of works his way up. He, he was a doctor for the army. The, the family then moves to Topeka, Kansas, and he works there at the famous Menninger um, Institute, and he gets training in um, psychiatry, and he becomes a Freudian psychiatrist. He, <clears throat> he did that with private patients. It's so you know richly ironic that someone who's studying um, Freudian psychology and um, the effects of of childhood on one's adult life is so abusive at home. Um, Lucy, you know, shared a lot. She loves her father and respects he's, he's him. Passed, no, he's right? he is passed. Yes, she loves her father and has really deep, you know feelings for him, strong, positive feelings for him. And yet, she also shared that starting at age five, he would beat the kids with a belt for almost any childhood infraction. Um, he had a, a wicked temper, and he was explosive and unpredictable at home. And the kids lived in fear of him. Um, he was abusive to his wife, Amelia. He later divorced and remarried, and I found the second family. The children, <clears throat> um, his stepchildren, to this day, and he's passed over 20 years ago, they still are in, live in fear of him. It's still in their hearts. And um, his stepdaughter, Michelle, told me a horrifying story about him uh, beating his wife um, and essentially breaking her arm and sending her to the hospital. So this is a this is a, a psychiatrist who at home has a, a private life and is abusive to his family that had a major impact on all the Montez children including Anna of course but interestingly Anna chose the path uh, that <coughs> you described and two of the other children were highly successful FBI agents right. so it's interesting how the, the the same family environment had such a different outcome <coughs> Pardon me. Yes, and Lucy makes the point that she doesn't want to excuse Anna's behavior because her father was an abusive person. Anna made a, a decision, a life choice. Lucy and her brother Tito, who became an FBI special agent, did not. So there were, there were four Montez children. Anna's the oldest, Lucy, who became a translator for the FBI in Miami, um, Tito, who became an agent with the FBI in Atlanta, and then a fourth brother who, uh, or I'm sorry, a second brother who was not in the FBI and had a different career path. Um, but Lucy really wants to make the point known that, okay, yes, my father was extremely difficult and we all are still dealing with trauma from it in some ways, but I joined the FBI, I'm patriotic, I'm loyal, my brother Tito feels the same way. We didn't become spies. There was something inside Anna, something about her um, that made her want to do this. Yeah, it's probably ego and a lot of other, other things that are mixed in, but Lucy has always been very firm about that and saying, this is my sister's decision this is not mine, and we can't blame it all on our father. Mother Amelia, who is still alive, uh, <clears throat> finally split from him, as you said, and you say that she became a role model for Anna. In what ways? 
Anna was very close um, to Amelia and still is. They're, they're, if they haven't already, they're going to reunite um, very, very soon. Um, Amelia is a really bright woman. I've read a lot of her writing. She's a very good writer. Um, she ended up working for the, uh, the federal government in a couple posts in the Baltimore area. But she also became kind of an, uh, an, an activist of sorts, um, like a community activist in Baltimore for the Latino community. She put on <clears throat> fairs and festivals that celebrated the different L- Latino um, uh, communities and neighborhoods in Baltimore. And she started a letter writing campaign. I found a lot of her old letters to the Baltimore newspapers. And it was interesting. You could kind of track her political development. I would describe her as <clears throat> a uh, you know politically progressive um, person, not not at all radical in any ways. She also was born in, in Puerto Rico, and that was very important to her. And I think Anna modeled um, herself on her as, as looking at an independent woman who ended up ultimately leaving her husband, um, living alone, raising her, her children, working for herself, and expressing her views in a very open um, and, and you know, political way as well. You have uh, three parts of Anna's young life that seem to shape her politics, her anger at U.S. policy towards Latin America. First of all, she went to uh, undergraduate where? At UVA, University of Virginia. And junior year abroad was really a pivotal year. Why? She spent her junior year abroad in uh, Madrid, in Spain, in a period in the in the 70s when uh, Spain was was really bubbling in lots of ways um, politically. And there was a lot of anti-imperialist and, and anti-American sentiment. She went there. Um, I interview a good friend of hers named Mimi Cologne, <clears throat> who was who lived with her and became a, 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 almost almost a lifelong friend of hers. And Mimi describes the the situation there, the the protests which were anti-American, the community of friends who were appalled by American behavior throughout the world, but in Latin America. And Ana fell for a young man named Ricardo, who was an Argentinian and had lived through the abuses of the government, especially towards leftists in Argentina. He was living um, with another family in Madrid, and he was very radical and really influenced her thinking and, and her politics. So, you know, she's a very young woman. She's She's only... I think 19 or 20 years old. She's a junior in college, but that was really a formative experience for her. After graduation, she went to <clears throat> family uh, in Puerto Rico, and there she espoused Puerto Rican nationalism as a cause. She be- yes, she be- um, started to believe in Puerto Rican nationalism. The, the U.S. has had, you know, a, a difficult um, connection to Puerto Rico for a long time. And there are many different political views about how that should be handled. Some peop- some uh, Puerto Ricans believe we need more independence. Um, some, like Ana, uh, think that the shackle should come off and Puerto Rico should be, com- you know, a nationalist and completely on its own and, and apart from uh, the U.S. Yes, so she developed um, those um, those beliefs, and then she moved very shortly. She was in Puerto Rico only for a couple months, and then she moved back to Washington, D.C., 
and took a job with the uh, U.S. Department of Justice. The third, it seemed most pivotal, was graduate school. Yes. Where did she go and what happened? Uh, Anna attended, it's called SICE is the acronym, it's the Johns Hopkins Graduate School in Washington, D.C. It's a very prestigious uh, school on Massachusetts Avenue here in D.C. And she was already working at the U.S. Justice Department in the Freedom of Information Act office, which is, you know, kind of a, if you if you're want to be a spy, that's kind of a backwater. But she had a, a security clearance there to see classified documents. And, and that became very important. While she's there, she becomes very outspoken on U.S. foreign policy. This is the Reagan era. President Reagan is an interventionist in Central America, in Nicaragua and El Salvador in particular. Ana was vehemently opposed to that, um, uh, that aggressive approach, and she shared those views with her classmates at SICE. Importantly, at SICE, there's a young woman, also a classmate of hers, named Marta Velazquez. Marta also was born in Puerto Rico. She had gone to Princeton and Georgetown Law, and now she's rounding off her, her uh, prestigious academic career at SICE. <clears throat> uh, Marta, un, unbeknownst to Ana, had already been recruited by the Cubans. Marta had gone her uh, senior year to Cuba um, at Princeton, and she wrote about the Cubans uh, for her thesis at Princeton, and she presumably met some Cuban intelligence officers during that trip. So they were already aware of her. By the time she gets to graduate school, she's already essentially working with the Cubans. And one of her roles is to be a spotter of new talent. And Anna is perfect. She has a security clearance. Um, She's Puerto Rican as well. She's politically very liberal and outspoken, and she can't stand what what the Reagan administration is doing. And bilingual. And bilingual. Put all that together, she's just an absolutely natural recruit. And her recruitment took place while she was in graduate school. So how's the process of getting recruited work? Well, in this case, um, it was a very kind of low-key Sell. You don't go to someone, knock on their door, and say, hi, I want you to be a spy. What happened in this case was Marta befriended Anna, and <clears throat> I can't say to, you know, to this day whether that was um, from the heart or um, you know, just for work purposes, for her spying um, career, essentially. But they became thick as thieves and did everything together. And at a certain point, Marta says to Anna, I'd like you to meet a friend of mine. I, I, think, you know, I think you would find it useful. And the two young women take a train from D.C. to New York. This is in late 1984. And they meet a man who, turn, it turns out, is an intelligence officer with the Cuban government. He works out of the mission, out of the United Nations, um, in, uh, in New York. They have a meal together, and Anna agrees at that meeting to spy on behalf of Cuba. For what reason? Well, at that point, she thought she would be helping with the the struggles 
with Nicaragua and El Salvador. The Cubans were involved. It was essentially a proxy war with the, the Cubans on the other side of U.S. foreign policy. Ana agreed with that point of view, so she thought <clears throat> that she could be helpful. So not it really didn't exactly have to do with Cuba at that moment. It had more to do with these civil wars that were being fought at, at the time. But she agreed to help, and it starts out in a very innocuous fashion. Marta um, in, encouraged Anna to write an autobiography, which turned out to be very useful. The Cubans now know what she's thinking and how to manipulate her. And they also asked her to translate some documents, which was also somewhat innocuous in, in a way, but drew her into this process as in terms of becoming a spy. So where was she working at that point? She was <clears throat> still at the, at the low level of Freedom Information Act? Correct. She was at the Department of Justice. So what was her next career move? Well, what happens is after this meeting in New York, the two women decide that, you know, with the encouragement of the Cubans, they're going to take a trip to Havana. So this is a covert an illegal trip. Anna works for the Department of Justice. She was not supposed to go to Cuba. So what they do, it's uh, ingenious. They make it look like they're, it's like a fun girls trip to Europe. They fly to Madrid with their real passports. When they're in Madrid, they are met by a Cuban handler, essentially, who gives them fake passports. They fly from Spain to Prague, and then they're met by another Cuban there, given new clothes and this fake passport, and then accompanied and flown from there to Havana. So it's a secret and illegal trip. The purpose is for the Cubans to suss her out, but then they decide this is perfect, we want to work with her, and they get Spy 101 training. They learn how to... Uh, see if someone is following them. They learn how to communicate, which is super important, using shortwave radio. And Anna insists on this trip that she learns how to defeat a polygraph. Because to your question, Susan, she knows she's going to come back and start applying to other government jobs. And she's worried she's going to be polygraphed, and she needs to know how to defeat it. So she asked for that I don't know if the Cubans would have offered it anyhow, but she asked for it and received training in Cuba. The tools of the trade that you describe are straight out of Hollywood. I mean, disappearing ink, uh, you know, tap codes on shortwave radio. It's, it's fascinating. It seems really kind of, in some ways, low-tech. It is, but it worked, and it was basically, it's a continuation of the Cold War. The main way that the Cubans communicated with Anna was by shortwave radio. She knew the frequency and she would listen on a, on a Sony shortwave radio with a little headset in her apartment in the Cleveland Park uh, section of D.C. This is once she's you know, fully recruited and in. And um, the, the way that the Cubans communicated is fascinating. You can actually find some of this um, online. People collect the, this audio. But what would happen is uh, a woman in Cuba would go into a sound booth in Havana <clears throat> and just read a series of numbers in Spanish, 150 digits, essentially, one after another. And, and typically, she would say, atención, atención, at the beginning, attention, attention, 
and then just ra read random, apparently random numbers. You wouldn't know what those numbers meant unless you had the code. Anna had the code. She had the code in her Toshiba laptop. So she would listen to this and jot down these 150 numbers, type it into her computer, and it would come out <clears throat> translated and tell her what the Cubans wanted her to do that week. And she would listen maybe two times, two, three times a week. That's how she got her messages from Castro, from Havana. And then the way that she would communicate with her handlers was typically in person, in restaurants in Washington, uh, where <clears throat> she would type up her all her notes from the week, all of her classified information, put them on a disk, and then discreetly slide the disk to her handler uh, in, a, in a restaurant in Washington, and then obviously would go back to Cuba. She lands a job at the Defense Intelligence Agency, DIA, which we'll <clears throat> call for the rest of our conversation. What's its mission? DIA is essentially the intelligence arm of the U.S. military. Uh, they don't like it when I call it this, but it is the CIA for the military because they are very proud and they, you know, they want to distinguish themselves from from uh, CIA. But it's an easy way to think about it. But it's the intelligence arm. Now I think there are sixteen thousand employees. It's a very large and important part of the intelligence community, and <clears throat> so. When Anna comes back from Cuba on this trip, the Cubans encourage her, you need to get out of DOJ, you're working in the Freedom of Information Act office, you're not going to have access to that much information, why don't you apply to some other jobs? And she does, and DIA is one of the places she applies. Marta Velazquez, her, her collaborator and conspirator, helps her, even lends her her typewriter, and <clears throat> so with Marta's help and the Cubans' help, essentially, she applies to be an analyst for DIA and is accepted in 1985. So she spends the rest of her time there until she's arrested. And the story of her career is really kind of eye-popping. Constantly promoted, constantly giving citations of merit. So how did she progress and why was she impressing people so much inside? Anna is very smart, very disciplined. So she was a great employee. Uh, I, I've interviewed you know, countless folks who worked with her and were impressed by her. Um, she had good memory, good recall, um, absolutely committed to her job. And what <clears throat> is fascinating is she essentially had two jobs. She had her day job at DIA where she goes in at 9 o'clock, she stays at her desk for lunch, takes you know, lunch at her desk, She's kind of her head down, not social at all, the kind of person that would pass you in the hall. You'd say hello, and she would just blow you off. And she would basically memorize these classified documents. She had legitimate legal access to a wide uh, variety of classified information across the intelligence community. So it's beyond DIA. It's CIA, State Department, all kinds of stuff is filtering up. And as an, an analyst, that's what she's supposed to do, is read. And she's reading, but she's reading with a purpose, and she's memorizing. She didn't take documents out of the building. Very rarely uh, would she take a piece of paper or a photo out of DIA. Instead, she would memorize. So her day job is <clears throat> study and memorization. And then she'd go home to her apartment 
and now her night job begins, where she would type in what she had learned into her encrypted Toshiba laptop, put it on a disk, and day after day for nearly 17 years, she's aggregating this information and passing it along. And that's why I make the argument that she was so damaging because of just the sheer volume of information that she was able to pass. In uh, 1990, you write that she Mm -hmm. was uh, appointed to the lead analyst for Nicaragua, Mm -hmm. and shortly thereafter, the war ended. And if her moral outrage was about U.S. policy, she lost her major reason for doing this. Why did she continue? Fair point. That's that's an excellent question. She, She got started in part because of Nicaragua and her anger over Reagan administration policy there. Right. And then the war ends. She could have said at that point, this has been fun. Thank you, Cuba. I'm, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. She didn't. There was something about her that liked it. It stroked her ego. And <clears throat> she decided, I'm in a unique position now. I can help my friends, the Cubans, and I want to continue. And she did. 1993 promoted to run DIA's Cuba analysis Yes. So now it's right on the nose. She's worked her way across the bureaucracy. She's really impressed a lot of folks getting promoted, cash awards, um, a lot of recognition. She was really the superstar analyst at, at DIA. And now she gets the Cuba desk, the Cuba account. So before... It was helpful to Cuba, for sure, because of these these two civil wars that are going on. But now she knows exactly what the U.S. government, military, is doing and wants to do in Cuba. The Castro regime is so paranoid, for good reason, about what might happen, what, what the Americans might do in Cuba. This is just gold for them to have someone in place to provide them this level of information. She actually traveled to Cuba on on U.S. government business a couple of times, right. but you explained that she during those trips she slipped away to visit her handlers. That seems incredibly dangerous. <laughs> it was. It absolutely was. So she did um, two illegal trips to Cuba and, and two legit trips uh, working for DIA when she was supposed to go. Um, she went once, this is a... Um, you know, an incredible risk, as you said, in 1998, I believe it was, the Pope visits um, Havana, visits Cuba, and she goes um, during that visit. And she's able to sneak away and meet with her handlers and communicate with them, even though she's there with the U.S. delegation. Really, really risky, but she got away with it at that moment. Well, uh the one point before we talk about how she got caught, uh, you write that spying is not only dangerous, it's isolating. So how was she living her personal life through all of this? Um, Anna was always single, no children. Uh, she, she dated. Um, but spying was very tough for her, and there was a lot of angst. I, I described it as more born than bond. More of the, if you think about the great Jason Bourne movies, what was going on in, in his mind, not, not the, uh, the cool, sophisticated James Bond version of spying. If you think about it, you're sitting on a secret, and who can you discuss it with? Almost no one. You certainly can't go to your family. Her whole family works for the FBI. The FBI is the 
primary law enforcement agency that that um, you know works on catching spies in the U.S. She couldn't tell her friends. She obviously can't tell her colleagues. So who is it? It's really just her handlers. And her handlers, they're not always there. They were in certain points, but when they get scared or um, if they think that law enforcement m- might be closing in on them, they just disappear. And so Anna went through periods where she she had no access to her handlers, and they're, they're her friends, her therapists, uh, her buddies. <clears throat> She's able to share her emotions with them in a way that she really can't with almost anyone else, and it created enormous pressure in her life. She suffered from a lot of psychological problems, especially later in her in her career, and that's what Lucy, her sister, was picking up on. Lucy describes, uh, I think it was her 40th birthday party. She invites Anna. Uh, it's in South Florida. All Lucy's friends are there. Anna is just sitting there like a lump. She refuses to engage with anyone is in a very rude but also just odd manner. And Lucy's like, what is going on? Why are you not talking to anyone? And much later, post-arrest, she realizes that Anna was in distress. Maybe she didn't even know how to vocalize it, but she was um, just so um, distraught at that moment um, and just feeling the pressure of all the spying and lying that she had done. So I guess it's the benefit of hindsight, but as you describe it, she often pushed her way into meetings that she shouldn't have been in. Mm -hmm. She was totally isolated in the office and would speak to no one. Wasn't anyone getting suspicious about this behavior? She was very difficult uh, at work, and and you're right. Um, She did kind of weasel her way into into many meetings. Sometimes she she really didn't have um, a role there. Um, her office mates, many of them found her to be really chilly. You know, the, the, her nicknames were Ice Queen, Queen of Cuba, which was a, a derisive kind of term, like Queen is in um, a little bit haughty. That was her. She didn't suffer fools at all. Um, could be explosive at, at meetings in, in a kind of odd odd way. She, she clearly took all this very personally. And yet kept getting promoted. And yet getting promoted because she was really good. She was a very good writer. Most, most of what her job entailed as an analyst doing long-form analysis of trends in, in Cuba was writing, and she was excellent at that. She was always prepared at meetings, very, very sharp. But she had a uh, you know, the side of her that was really prickly, and she rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Um, there wasn't a lot of suspicion about her um, until around 1996, when one of her colleagues did get suspicious and raised an, an issue with her with the um, security kind of mechanism within DIA, the folks who were looking for spies. They're, they're called mole hunters. And it's the investigative uh, function within DIA. Enter Scott Carmichael. Yes. Who who was he and what was his role? Scott was at DIA. He was a mole hunter. Um, So he worked on security matters at DIA. And it's, you know, they have folks all over the world. So he was a busy guy. What happened is a colleague of Anna's grew a little suspicious about her behavior, about how she was poking her nose into, into meetings where she arguably didn't need to be involved. 
and also <clears throat> felt that during a, uh, a crucial period when Anna was called in by the generals into the Pentagon to brief on a crisis between the U.S. Uh, and Cuba involving a shootdown of uh, planes, uh, this is the Brothers to the Rescue uh, crisis. Uh, this um, employee believed and had heard that Anna had taken a personal phone call and left a meeting early. A secure meeting. Uh, exactly. And that's just not something that you do. It turns out that part, the leaving early part and taking a call, um, is a, uh, is, is, is a question and it probably didn't happen. But the point is, someone within DIA, a colleague, was suspicious about Anna, reached out to Scott Carmichael, whose job it is to find people with security risks, and that led Scott to interview Anna way before she was on the FBI's radar or anyone thought that she might be a Cuban spy. So he was aware of her, his books were open on her, even though nothing happened at that particular time. Yeah, well, there was some some suspicious behavior, <clears throat> but um, Scott, it, it took him a long time to even think that this is worth his while, but he did ultimately conduct an interview with Anna um, years before her arrest, and, and again, before she, she really came under suspicion. Another key character in uh, Anna's ultimate <clears throat> arrest is Elena Valdez. Who is she? Elena Valdez is a pseudonym that I created because she didn't want her real name used. Um, Elena was an analyst at the NSA, the National Security Agency. NSA is one of the most secretive agencies in all of Washington, in the intelligence community, and other, uh, among other things, they track <clears throat> communications around the globe, particularly involving our adversaries, our foreign adversaries. Elena um, was with a unit that got involved in decrypting and listening to these secret shortwave radio communications. Um, and she got she and her team got hold of communications between Cuba and their uh, their handlers, if you will, or officials in the U.S. And <clears throat> she realized that there was a lot of conversation about someone that was called Agent S. And she obviously had no idea who Agent S was. But she knew that Agent S <clears throat> had to be at a pretty high level within the U.S. intelligence community based on all these random facts that were attributed to Agent S. Um, the NSA can't, can't investigate and, and arrest someone who might be a spy, so they brief this to the FBI. This is approximately three years prior to Anna's arrest. So, a ballpark 1998. Elena and her bosses <clears throat> go in and they brief the FBI. And Elena at that point thought, okay, I've done my job. I've brought these very specific facts about a likely spy who's a top official um, uh, officer or official within the U.S. intelligence community. I've brought it to the FBI. They're going to do their job. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case. She, <clears throat> she became very frustrated. The FBI took these clues um, and really kind of spun their wheels for more than two years, two to three years. Uh, in the FBI's defense, this is hard work. 
they now know that there's someone who is a spy. They don't know who it is. They don't know what agency it is. They have to keep this very close held because you don't want to inform the spy. If you do, the spy is going to leave. So <clears throat> they, they work this case very slowly and deliberately. It was too slow and deliberate for Elena. She thought the FBI wasn't, just wasn't aggressive enough, and <clears throat> she was worried that they were letting a potential spy go. Bear in mind, Elena is a Cuban-American. She came here with her family, forced to leave Cuba when she was six years old. She hates the, the Castro regime. You know, she hated the Castro regime. So she had really a motivation to try and solve this riddle. When she was frustrated with the FBI's pace, she reached out to them, and she says someone at the FBI told her the case is closed. I think that is inaccurate information. I don't think the case was ever closed, but that's what she was told and she believed. It drove her crazy. She was so frustrated and angry. She thought, oh my goodness, I'm on to a Cuban spy working for the U.S. government. I'm a Cuban-American. I'm not letting this go. Out of her desperation, really, she went behind the back of the FBI and reached out to investigators at DIA and told them about this open case, this uh, open criminal case. When the FBI learned about that, they were absolutely furious. They threatened Elena with arrest. Uh, Her bosses at NSA uh, were very unhappy. They threatened to fire her, but she really didn't care. And she continued to feed information almost covertly to the DIA while the FBI is very slowly still investigating this case. Well, we have just about nine minutes left. We've got lots of detail about the tug of war between the intel agencies and the FBI. I'm wondering what you ended up thinking about all that. I think these are all well-meaning people um, and, you know, good, good, uh, you know, loyal, hardworking Americans. I think the FBI was in a, in a difficult um, position. Um, but, I, but I also give credit to Elena and to Scott Carmichael, who ultimately was the beneficiary of her information. They ended up working together to solve the riddle. They figured out through these, these clues that Elena had and information that Scott developed at DIA, they figured out that it was very likely the spy Agent S was likely Ana Montez. They then brought it to the FBI. There was some uh, infighting uh, between those agencies early on. The FBI ultimately agreed this is a likely spy. They opened a full field investigation in late 2000, and clearly they ultimately arrest Ana Montez after 9-11. So many interesting scenes of them surreptitiously going to into her apartment and going through things, and she carelessly left things around the apartment that ended up uh, making the case for them. She was pretty careful um, in general, I would say, you know, not bringing documents out of, out of the building and memorizing, but she was not great at tech. And on her laptop, Um, Even though she had instructions for how to fully delete um, files, she didn't do that, and she left incriminating information. The FBI got special court authorization to break into her apartment. It was a black bag job to break into her apartment in May 2001. And when they went in, they copied 
her laptop hard drive, and that is really ultimately what convicted her. The notes back and forth between Cuba and Ana Montes made it very clear that she was a spy. How did she react to her arrest? Uh, she she was nonplussed, I would say. Um, the FBI had a whole um, charade in that when they were arresting her, they arrested her at, at DIA. They tried to draw her out and get her to talk. They invoked and mentioned, we know that your, your family members work for the FBI. Hint, hint, wink, wink, maybe they're involved. It didn't work. <clears throat> she was cool as a cucumber. Uh, the DIA had pre-positioned a nurse and CPR equipment. They thought maybe she would faint. Ana Montes walked out proud, shoulders held high, uh, head held high out of that building and didn't need any help whatsoever. How did she plead? She ultimately pled guilty um, and she cooperated with the government. They had a long series of debriefs where she had to reveal what she knew. And that's how she was able to get what was a 25-year sentence. She ultimately served uh, just a little more than 21 years. But there are some critics who say that wasn't enough. She should have gotten a life sentence. Other spies, including Ames and, and Hansen, we mentioned, um, they got life sentences. Anna, I, you know, I, I think revealed a, a, a lot and probably more information in some ways uh, and, and got a 25-year sentence. She is out now. She's 65 years old. She's essentially free. She's living in, in Puerto Rico. And she has the, the chance and ability to rebuild her life. But one of the remarkable scenes, and, and she had all these years in, in uh, basically solitary to think about what she had done, was the letter she sent to her 17-year-old nephew. No remorse. She has no remorse whatsoever. She still believes in what she did. She thinks she was helping the cause. Um, she's not self-aware enough to, to think about what her options were. I mean, it, you know, we're, we're Americans. We have freedom of speech. She could have protested. She could have joined groups that were, that were opposed to U.S. policy. She didn't do any of that. So, yes, in her letters from prison, she's not apologetic. She got out of prison, as I mentioned. She's in Puerto Rico. She issued a fiery statement just uh, a week or so ago with no contrition whatsoever. She will not apologize for actions. In fact, it was a political statement attacking the U.S. and the ongoing embargo with Cuba. As we wrap up here, uh, what did you, uh, what was your assessment of the intel services and what they learned from having a spy in their midst for 20 years? I do think that they learned. Uh, I spoke the other day at, at DIA, and they're introspective about this. They realize that insider threats are important and, and that we need, as a, a government, need to be aware of that. And so I do think that they've, um, that they've learned from this. Uh, an, you know, another point, Anna did not receive a polygraph upon entering DIA. She did later, and she passed it. That has really changed. Polygraphs are used. They're, they're far from perfect, but they're used a lot more. Um, and so I, 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 I want to hope that our intelligence agencies are uh, more skeptical uh, and, and look more for insider threats like Ana Montes. And having spent 15 years of your life with Ana Montes and thinking about her, what's your ultimate assessment of her? Uh, cold, calculating, um, um, refuses to apologize. Uh, I don't think she's particularly introspective. Um, she's not really looked 
at at her family situation, her father, and why she ended up uh, where she is. And, you know, I think about Lucy and the family, the mother, Amelia, and the harm that she caused. It's hard to believe that she, in her heart, thinks that this was worth it. There are so many people who were burned by her and are still angry and upset. And it's, it's hard to imagine that she doesn't or shouldn't have some real contrition over this. What has working on this story all those years done for you as a reporter, as a journalist? What have you learned that has changed your perspective? Um, you know, I guess that, that um, you, you follow these big national stories, um, as, as I have and obviously you have in your great career, Susan, and you think about the families that are involved, and these are human stories, and that I guess that's really what I was left with. Um, you know, on the surface, you just think about, oh, this is a woman who spied, and this is what happened to the government. Well, there are people on the other end, their colleagues and friends and family members who were so hurt by this, and, and I guess that's something that, that has stayed with me. The title is Codename Blue Ran, the True Story of America's <laughs> Most Dangerous Female Spy and the Sister She Betrayed. Never asked you how it got named Blue Wren. Is there a story there? Uh, Blue Wren was the code name for the, the search and the investigation. I, I just thought it was kind of poetic and have always liked it. Thank you very much for the hour you spent with us. First book, How's it feel to be an author? It sounds wonderful, and I'm so happy to be here. Thank you very much. We're glad to have you. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome. 